Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode three of Living Out Loud with your host, Jess Phillips. This is definitely going to be a special and interesting episode. Uh, There is nobody here for me to interview. It is just me, myself, and I, which I'm pretty excited about, but also nervous. It's something that I've wanted to do for quite a long time, um, probably about six years now. Uh, So kind of sad that it's taken me so long, but Honestly, I can't thank you guys enough with all of your support and people listening and all of your feedback and also constructive criticism too. You know, so many of my friends have reached out saying, great job, but just kind of check this about your mic and this. And everybody knows so much about different areas of, you know, podcasting and IT and computers and all these things that I'm really not well-versed in, as you can see, I almost just tipped my computer over, Um, but it's totally welcomed and totally appreciated. So keep sending it. It really, really, really helps me. Um, So I was having a conversation last week with my good friend, Talia Dezo, who is also an amazing photographer. So if you want to check her out, taliadezo.com and Talia Dezo photography on Instagram, And she was sharing some feedback with me as well. And she said, you know, Jess, these interviews are great Um, and learning about what other people specialize in and their expertise are great as well. But, you know, do some episodes where A, you're getting feedback from your audience. So topics that people want to talk about questions. Uh, We're going to do a couple of new segments coming up in a few weeks. Uh, One of them is going to be called asking for a friend. So you guys are going to get to send in all of your anonymous questions that you feel too maybe shy or nervous to say out loud and, you know, kind of ask in front of a, a group of people. So you can send them to me anonymously. You can send them under an alias name or a friend's name, and I will do my best to talk about them either in an interview, answer them myself, and just make this a really kind of fun and interactive, you know, episodes for you guys, you know, to, to tune into some of those things that you want to hear and that you want to talk about or the questions that you want to have answered. So those are all the exciting things coming up. Um, I think this episode is also going to be an opportunity for me to kind of, you know, talk about the point of this podcast, how this podcast started, um, some of the things that I'm going to be focusing on and why it's so important that I'm going to be focusing on them. So, you know, I think my bread and butter for a long time has been, um, you know, the, the specialty focus on addictions and people often think of addictions and they think of alcoholism, drug addiction, you know, but as the years have passed and after working with numerous people, I have come to understand that you can be addicted to (laughs) absolutely almost anything, you know, and I've seen some you know, very, very, very strong, debilitating, insidious addictions that people struggle with. And the sad thing is, and I think that it's definitely getting better, but the sad thing is, is that we're still um, not openly talking about a lot of them. So, you know, besides alcohol and drugs, 
there's a lot of other things that people either come to me or that I've studied that can be addicted to, you know, and those things can include food. I think, <clears throat> you know, processed sugar and, and processed carbohydrate addiction is becoming a huge problem. Um, and I think a lot of people are on the fence. I've also spoken to a lot of other professionals. So some psychologists in the eating disorder fields, um, you know, some CBT therapists and in no way am I saying, you know, that, that my opinion on things are correct. And this is the only way it needs to be. I am very, very, very well aware that I don't know a lot about a lot, but I do have a lot of personal experience with my own struggles. And also there is definitely a common thread with the people that I work with um, that also have very similar struggles. So when I see a lot of people suffering with the same thing, it definitely gives it a little bit more power for me. And I believe that it's something that needs to be examined and explored a little bit more. I was talking to um, <clears throat> an eating disorder psychologist, I think it was about last year, and I was asking her opinion on food addiction and asking her, can you be addicted to, you know, white processed sugar and white processed flour? And, and her opinion was that, you know, you can't be that food, food addiction doesn't exist and then I remember speaking to another, uh, it wasn't a therapist, but it was somebody in the nutrition field who very, very much believes in sugar and, and processed flour addiction. So it's definitely interesting to see everybody's kind of point of view. And I definitely respect everybody's uh, way of treating. And, you know, I always suggest to clients or to friends, do what works for you, you know? I think a lot of you now know um, after the first podcast and being a little bit more vocal about my own sobriety is that if there's one thing I know for sure is that something very different happens to me versus my family members or friends when I drink alcohol, for example. So I can have a friend who can go out on a Friday night after a long week and have you know, three glasses of wine, maybe get a little bit tipsy and say, okay, hops in an Uber, hops in a cab home. And <clears throat> that's it for him or her. You know, they've gotten that kind of release that they were looking for. They feel better. They maybe had some fun conversations, maybe got a little bit silly. For me, that doesn't happen. And that's never happened. You know, when I plan to go have a glass of wine on a Friday night, it's all of a sudden Monday morning, and I have no money left. I don't know where I am. I don't know what happened. And thank God that there's a lot of other people that I've met that drink that way too. You know, it made me feel much less alone in what was happening with my body in regards to alcohol consumption. So what I started to notice over the years was that people who had that similar experience with addictive tendencies, maybe alcohol or drugs, we're also having that same experience with food, specific food. So specifically, you know, the majority of the time, white processed sugar, white processed flour. And when they were eating these 
I'll call them substances. Cause I actually view them more as a drug now than anything else. You know, when they were eating things like candy and sugar and ice cream and chips, it was this very all or nothing approach. So it was very interesting to see, especially people who were getting sober or in recovery or abstinent from certain substances. It was very interesting to see how quickly they were turning to the food. And then it made me start to think, okay, well, what's in this food, right? Because I never found myself binging on carrot sticks or celery. It was always, you know, chips, candy, cookies, sugar, anything that made me feel, you know, excited or comforted. Um, And I never just want two chips. You know, I want the whole bag of chips. So food has become definitely a a hot topic for me that I'm going to focus on you know, in quite a few episodes going forward. And if anybody has anything that they want to talk about or any specific ideas or questions, I'd be more than happy to answer them and explore them with you anonymously, of course. Um, And we're going to start to interview some really cool and interesting people in all different fields, because again, you know, I think recovery from whatever substance or issue has to be about finding what works for you. And, you know, what works for me, I mean, total abstinence from alcohol, drugs, cigarettes might not be the way for other people, but I definitely know that it has afforded me a way better life than ever trying to control these substances. So going forward, we're going to hear from people who believe in an abstinence-based model, even when it comes to food, sugar, and then we're going to hear from people who you know, might use, might use techniques like cognitive behavior therapy, um, you know, moderation, you hear things like the 80, 20 rule in terms of food, you know, be nice and clean during the week, Monday to Friday, loosen up, have fun with your friends on the weekend, and then hop back on the horse on Monday. I've tried that (laughs) many a times. It doesn't work very well for me, but we're definitely going to look at it all because I love it. I love to look at it all. Um, you know, I love to try different things and, and again, see what works for you, you know? So I think food is going to be a hot topic going forward. And then you look at all these other types of addictions, you know, and last episode with, uh, with Lori pool, psychologist, psychotherapist from, from Dallas, Texas, she gave us a taste of, you know, attachment, attachment injuries, codependency, relationship addiction. And I think that it can be just as easy to become addicted to another person as it can be drugs, alcohol, food, you know, what, whatever the vice may be. And, and, and that's a big one, you know, that's a big one because relationships are not easy. You know, it's something that I don't think is super easy to talk about when, you do feel that overwhelming sense of, you know, maybe craving or obsession or obsessiveness towards another person. And you don't know why, you know, I have a lot of people talk to me about this, you know, my partner seems so kind of cool and easygoing. And then whenever I get into a relationship, it's almost like I've been heard that it's like, um, a monster takes over, you know, and, and an obsessive thinking and, you know, losing this version of yourself and becoming so, you know, hyper interested in the other person where 
all of your own activities, all of your own thoughts, all of your own values seem to go out the window because you become so hyper-concerned with what this other person is thinking. And not only do I understand that professionally, but personally as well, you know, and I think that that can also be a very large uh, trigger for people who are in recovery from, you know, drug addiction, alcoholism, it's almost like they're putting down one substance and then when another person, place, or thing comes in that makes them feel that same type of excitement, it can go from zero to a hundred very quickly. So I think, you know, codependency, attachment injuries, you know, guys, the more that I read about attachment injury, not only did it give me so much personal comfort about why and how I was behaving in relationships, but it also just made me kind of put down the stick a little bit because I was always very hard on myself, not knowing why I would become avoidant in relationships, not knowing why I would shut down, not knowing why I would, you know, maybe blow things out of proportion. And the more I read and the more you know, content I found. I think that's one of the biggest reasons why I want to do this podcast. And eventually why I want to do these YouTube videos is because, you know, yes, for sure. You know, learning everything I have from school and courses and work and working with people one-on-one, I have also been able to soak up so much information and free information on top of that from these amazing, brilliant people on YouTube. Um, you know, there's, there's women like Lisa Romano who specializes in codependency and narcissistic abuse and Dr. Nicole LaPera who wrote how to do the work. Uh, she goes under the holistic psychologist handle on Instagram and YouTube and Facebook, and they're just brilliant. You know, they're just brilliant people who specialize in these different areas, but have taught me so very much along the way and has also helped me, you know, feel less shameful and guilty about why I was showing up the way that I was showing up in certain areas of my life. And I definitely want to be, um, you know, a source of that for other people. So again, why I, I would really like people to kind of, you know, send in some certain topics or maybe people that they want to have interviewed, I've already gotten a few from my dad and, you know, obviously he suggests people like Joe Rogan. So I definitely like some better suggestions and, uh, you know, nothing against Joe Rogan, but we're not going to open up that can of worms, but you know, anybody in the self-help development field or certain topics that you guys want to hear, I would definitely appreciate that. Um, so, you know, and other addictions can include spending. I think spending is a huge huge one for people. Um, you know, again, not feeling settled inside can often translate into all kinds of ways for us to, you know, I've often heard of it as called as, as, as falling asleep, right. You may have heard of it as blacking out, becoming unconscious, just really wanting to numb out. And people can do that in a multitude of different ways. And I think more and more I see today is 
you know, all of those commercials when we're sitting on social media or scrolling online and you see these advertisements for all kinds of stuff. And within the click of a button, you can have a full course meal show up at your door and not even have to talk to the person and they'll just drop it at your door or, you know, buying stuff on Amazon or just going to whatever mall it is. And, and yeah, definitely probably feeling better in, you know, within the next hour. But then after that, that it's that same cycle of guilt, shame, fear, remorse sets in, whether it's food, whether you're coming down from a a person, you know, whether it's shopping, you name it. And, you know, we can go into all kinds of different areas with addictions, but that is definitely one uh, that I want to focus on going forward. And, you know, I think this is also a time for me to finally just talk about, you know, how I got here, you know, who I am, who I help going forward and, what are some of the things that I'm, I'm truly passionate and that I truly want to help people with is that fundamental idea of, you know, self-soothing and knowing how to feel okay within your own skin without having to reach for anything. And I remember feeling so different as a kid because I would look around at these other children and I would think, damn, like everybody just looks so comfortable and they're running around and they're playing with other kids. And it was almost like there wasn't a thought going through their minds and they just knew how to do everything. And if there's one thing that I remember as a child was being notoriously stuck in my head you know, having these very serious thoughts as a kid where I don't assume that you're supposed to have such serious thoughts and being very nervous about what other people were going to think and being very nervous in my own home, you know, and I never realized that either. I always just felt this sense of unease and very uncomfortable and never really comfortable to tell people how uncomfortable I was feeling because it felt so odd. And I felt I already kind of felt so left out in my own thinking that I was almost ashamed to talk to anybody about it. And the more that I study today and the more that I read, the more I understand that when a child doesn't feel comfortable, you know, say from zero to eight years old, the probability of you feeling uncomfortable as an adult becomes quite high you know, and what I've come to learn as secure attachment as a kid, you know, feeling at ease, feeling at ease with both parents, at ease with your friends at school, at ease with your teacher. And then life just seems to flow a little more and not saying that secure people don't have the same life issues as other people. Of course they do, but there's not that sense of, you know, that anxious impending doom or something bad is right around the corner or just that feeling of feeling very unsettled. A lot of the time, I don't think that secure people often experience, you know, so when that follows you all through elementary school, and I remember getting to high school and I remember my mom, you know, and and my mom just did the best with what she knew how to do and her putting me into an all girls 
private Catholic academy <laughs> a year early seemed like the best idea. And, <clears throat> and I couldn't express how nervous I felt. I couldn't express the, the paralyzing fear that came over me at that time. And I remember just being so nervous, even to hop on that train or that bus just to get to school. And I would be so nervous to the point where I would almost throw up when I got to school. And I don't really know what I was so nervous of. You know, I was pretty social. I looked quite confident on the outside. And I just really felt like something bad was going to happen. Or this idea of, it was almost like an imposter syndrome at such a young age that I was going to be found out for what I'm not sure, but I knew people were going to find out and either call me out or reject me, or it was a really, really, really awful feeling. And I remember during that time, my first attachment to food developing because I received such a comfort after feeling so nervous all day that when I would reach for the food in the evening, it was like magic. It was, it was soothing. It was safe. It was something I could do by myself. It was something that I could do in secret. It was just beautiful, you know, and it became my thing and my way to calm myself down. But it also became, you know, quite secretive quite early because I had such a healthy household. You know, my father was an athlete. My brother was an athlete. My mom always looked the part, tall, thin, beautiful, always took care of herself. And there really was none of that junk to be found in the house. So I remember already at such a young age, 10 or 11 years old, going to pretty extreme lengths to, you know, acquire that food, find it, hide it, know that it was there for the next day when I came home from school. And even just the thought of knowing that it was there produced enough of effect for me to feel quite calm and have something to look forward to. And was speaking with many, many, many people along the way, addicted, non-addicted, secure, anxious, avoidant. I know a lot of people don't have that experience with food or with substances. And that's how I very much believe in abstinence for myself because I was never eating, you know, for the energy. I was never eating, you know, just to get fuel and move on with my day. I was eating for effect and I was eating certain foods for effect, but obviously I didn't really know that that was happening at that age. And, and that really escalated quickly for me. You know, I remember by the time I was taken out of that school and I was put into a public school, I had gone through puberty at the time. I had gained a ton of weight and it was just such an uncomfortable time. And it's so interesting looking back to see how my mind was working. And I thought to myself, okay, well, food's not working for you anymore. So what's the next best thing? And it's so crystal clear for me looking back now on the history and the development of my addiction and how it's morphed into many different sources for me along the way. But as soon as I decided to put down the food and I wanted to, you know, maybe look a little bit better, fit in a little bit more, 
it was grade nine. I was looking around at all the other girls, seeing what they were wearing, how they were dressing. And I was like, oh girl, you better change something quick. And, and it's sad to me today, you know, being 36 years old, I see some young girls who are 12, 13 and, oh, it's just a shame. I think how insecure we can feel because I look at these girls and think how beautiful and cute they are. And just to think how badly I beat the shit out of myself at that age. Cause I looked back at pictures and there was absolutely nothing wrong, you know, but in my mind, I was this this monster who was never going to fit in unless she was a size, whatever, and wearing certain clothes. And, uh, and again, just like the food, I went to very great lengths to feel better about myself, you know, and that started with smoking cigarettes. And to be honest, I don't even know how anybody starts to smoke cigarettes. Cause I remember stealing cigarettes from my mother. She's going to kill me if she listens to this episode, stealing cigarettes from my mother. She smoked Craven a I would go into her dining room, take one of them, walk to the park across the street from my house, light it and force myself to inhale this disgusting poison filled stick to the point where I thought I was going to vomit. And then I couldn't wait to do it again. (laughs) You know, and I think a lot of people don't have that experience. I think a lot of people try something really gross and they think to themselves, oh, wow, I'm never doing that again. And to me, it was the opposite. It was like, let's go, let's go. When are, when is this going to happen? And it started with that, you know, and then it started with smoking pot and then it started with drinking and controlling the food. And it's no wonder to me now that There was no stopping me at that point because I was always looking for something to make me feel better than I felt naturally. And I would have gone to, I couldn't even imagine actually today if I was still in search of that, you know, or still actively drinking or using what that would look like for me today. And I think one of the saddest things was getting into hard drugs at such a young age. And I remember them being introduced to me by a girl who was actually using them to lose weight. She wasn't using them to feel good or to have fun with her friends. She was using these substances to feel and look thin and be accepted by her peers you know, and I think it's so sad. And I think it's starting even younger today. You know, there was clients during COVID that I was working with as young as, you know, 13 years old. And it's always that same vicious cycle, you know, peer pressure, wanting to fit in, wanting to be a certain size and essentially hurting ourselves in the process of attaining validation or, you know, maybe a romantic relationship or attention from the other sex or from the same sex, whatever it is. And just, you know, being willing to hurt yourself just to get, you know, some recognition from other people is, is very sad, you know? And I, I think I even have to be mindful of that today because I think a lot of those, um, you know, factory settings are still quite prevalent in my life when I'm not feeling secure today. So that was, uh, you know, hell in a handbasket. And that sent me down quite a spiral for many, many years. 
And I think sometimes some of the things that people are doing to feel better about themselves. I don't think you realize, or I'll speak for myself. I didn't realize when that invisible line uh, was crossed, when it went from choosing to use these substances to needing to use these substances. And I think once that line is crossed, that's a very dangerous place to be because it's almost like, it's almost like this animal takes over, you know, and, and, and I, and I, I've also worked with a lot of parents and a lot of families who are watching this destruction. And if you're a parent or if you have a loved one who is an active addiction or alcoholism, they often ask me like, why, why can't they stop? You know, they're begging and they're pleading these parents and these family members or, you know, some of the clients who are using or drinking have small children at home, or they have husbands or wives begging them to come home. And, and I always tell them the same thing. It, it doesn't matter at that point, because the person is no longer really the person. It's like, you're almost under a spell. And now the substance or the drink is now running your life. And I think a lot of the values that the person had, maybe when you met them are currently not there, they're still there underneath, but when you're in active addiction, it's very hard to put your values first. You know, you become a slave to the substance or you become a slave to the alcohol and that's, what's driving your choices and decisions each day and things like spouses or kids or mortgage payments or job traveling, all of those things get pushed aside. And it's sad for the families because they think to themselves, well, if he or she loved me, they would stop. If he or she loved their children enough, they would stop. If they saw the importance of us about to lose our home, they would stop. But actually that's not true. You know, they don't stop for those reasons, because if they did, then you wouldn't see any of the, the tragedies happening or, you know, rehabs wouldn't exist. A lot of people ask me, you know, just do I need to go to rehab? Does my spouse need to go to rehab? And I think that I think some people do and some people don't. I think rehabs are extremely important for people who need to be removed from their environments. Some people need, you know, 30, 60, 90 days away lock and key from the alcohol or from the drugs to stop because if you stay in the same environment that alcohol is readily available it's not really about willpower at that point some people are just unable to stop and they keep reaching for it day after day after day and months go by and years go by and no change happens so yes do i think a lot of people need rehab for sure you know i know specifically i did twice at a very young age, you know, the first time was 30 days, which wasn't nearly enough. And the second time was four months, you know, and, and, and I think four months, you know, three to four months allows you enough time to realize a, to, to, to get the physical substance out of your system, right? Because it's going to take you at least three weeks to detox. And, and that's for anything, alcohol, 
illicit drugs, sugar, carbohydrates. Like people don't understand when you try to do a sugar detox, you're going to withdraw, not as severe, but you're going to withdraw like the same process you do from a drug or a drink. You're going to have headaches. You're going to feel irritable. You might feel restless. Your sleep might be disrupted. It's again, it's a drug. It's a substance in our body. And when you remove something that your body is used to receiving, it's going to have a reaction you know, and that, that last four months stint for me was a long enough time to a physically detox B start to feel some of the emotions coming up that I had been stuffing for so long and see enough time to realize, holy shit, there are a lot of other people out there that drink and use like me that feel like me that feel as insecure as me and are just as lost as me. And I didn't know that before. I really felt like, I really felt like the oddball in my family. I felt like the oddball within my friends, within whatever job I had at the time. It was hard. I felt like everybody knew how to drink and party normally. And then once Monday rolled around, they would get on with their lives and they would just get back to their day to day. And for me, it wasn't like that. I wanted the party to keep going. So those were the benefits of, of, of being put away into a treatment center. And then there's certain people, you know, who are drinking or using, and despite the booze or the drugs being around them, they're, they're able to, to stop and to, you know, to gain recovery or to gain abstinence, whatever that's going to look like for them. So you know, I, I don't promote either way. Again, at the end of the day, this podcast and these episodes are going to be about exploring all different avenues and finding out what works for you. Because if there's one thing that I truly know is that you can't convince anybody of anything, you have to be at least 10% willing to change your life. Because if I was going to be forced into both of those places and then forced to recover, I'm quite defiant by nature. So I don't think that that would have worked very well for me. So it's really about kind of combining that however small amount of willingness you can muster up um, and then figuring out, you know, that, that course of action for you and what that's going to take. So when I came out of that treatment center, I was 21 years old and it was the first time I had been sober, really sober. I think I had tried maybe like to get a week or two before that, but I was always smoking pot or maybe taking a pill or whatever it was. But this time I was sober, sober. And I remember getting out at 21 and thinking it was almost like this, this kind of pivotal fork in the road or this make it or break it moment where I could clearly see what was going to happen if I continued doing the things that I had been doing before. And I cherish that moment because I don't know how many people get that moment often. I had always been surrounded by older friends and I started to see some of this destruction that alcohol and drugs, you know, the effects that we're having on their lives. Um, 
and, and when that party starts to die, you know, when you're used to bartending or when you're used to living these huge party scenes and, and that's not really happening anymore, it, it hits you. I think, you know, whether it's at 21 or 30 or 35 or 40, for some people, stuff starts to change and people start to move on. And, and when you don't feel like you're moving on with them, it can be a really, really terrible feeling inside. And I was fortunate enough to have that feeling at, at 21. And I just knew in that moment, if you don't make a change, girl, I don't even know if you're going to live past 25. You know, I really didn't have high hopes for myself. And in that moment, it was like, okay, you know, let's, <laughs> let's go and do all the things that you avoided doing before. And I, and, you know, I, I get a lot of people send me, you know, motivational videos or these quotes and I post a lot and, and I know that it's much easier said than done. And I think why I'm so passionate about goal setting, especially small goal setting. I think it's very easy to get excited about these huge goals and, and wanting to lose 50 pounds and getting your beach body or wanting to save a hundred grand. These are all great things. And I'm never going to discourage anybody from setting big goals, but show me how you're going to stick to the small ones first. And then I'll have a little bit more confidence about you attaining the big ones. And I used to always be a big dreamer, especially when I was drinking or using, Oh my God, I had these very big plans and I was going to do all this stuff <laughs> and it doesn't happen because they're, they're too big. They're too far out of reach. And I remember when I, when I got sober at 21 and, and I moved back home with my parents in and it was time, it was time to set those small goals. And, you know, I remember the first one was going back and getting my high school diploma. And I think, you know, looking back, I, I get now why the shame and the fear stop people from doing the things that they want to do. I remember even at 21 feeling an immense amount of shame to go back and finish my high school. And all the kids were so young at this adult education center. And I felt embarrassed and I felt out of place and I felt, I felt old. And now I see people doing it at 35, 40, 50. And I want to like scream it off the rooftop, how excited I am for them, you know, because it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter when you do it. It matters. <laughs> it matters just doing it, you know, and and I remember doing it and I remember finishing it and getting that piece of paper. And I was just like, oh, that tiny little bit of self-confidence, you know, was enough for me to, to set a little bit of a foundation to keep springing forward. And, and I remember the next school was, was getting a driver's license and I'll never, ever, ever, ever forget that experience. I think I was 22 by the time I went back to go and do it. And my dad took me and he drove me to Valley field to do the exam. And I practiced so much and I was so nervous and I aced, I think it was the parallel parking or the backwards parking. I can't remember it. And she just looked at me and she goes, you did it. You passed. Good job. And she signed this little piece of paper and I jumped out of the car and I kind of was jumping up and down and, and the look on my dad's face, and I think that on top of sobriety and on top of feeling good about some of those decisions, it's those very small moments that I'm going to cherish forever and look back because 
that was an experience that I think a lot of people might have at 16 years old. And, and, and I got to relive it at 22, you know, and again, whether you're living it at 22 or 32 or 42, it doesn't matter. It's about how special the moment was and how proud my dad was of me and driving back home and him letting me drive his car. And, and it was like, I got to relive that time that I was, I was blacked out. I was a zombie. You know, I was a total zombie throughout all of those experiences and not to mention how my parents probably felt at the time, not being able to experience those things with me, you know, and maybe losing hope that we were going to ever experience those things together. So, you know, that was a definitely special moment. And, uh, and then I just kept going from there, you know, and the next, the next step was, okay, what are you going to do with your life? And I really had no idea. And I have so many people that I work with that tell me the same thing. Jess, I have no idea what I'm going to do with my life. And I don't know. I don't know if there's these lucky people who have these childhood dreams of becoming a doctor or an engineer or a vet, and they just go for it. I think I know a few of them, and I think it's great. But I sure as shit didn't. <laughs> I remember me and my best friend wanted to start a bakery when we were kids called the Hunkabunks. <laughs> and that was my wild idea, you know? And, and I didn't even like baking. I didn't even bake. I didn't practice baking. It was just another kind of wild pipe dream that I had in my head that, that I didn't put any work towards. So, you know, if you're listening to this or if you're feeling that way and and, and again, doesn't matter whether you're 20, 30, 40, or 50, if you don't know what to do with your life, there's, there's no better time than to start figuring it out. But now, you know, and I remember applying to university almost as a joke. Like I really didn't even think I was going to get considered. And I had to apply as a mature student because I never went to CJEP. And in Quebec, if anybody's listening outside of Quebec, you have to, <clears throat> I think it's three years of CJEP, um, and then you go to university here. It's not like in the States where you just go from high school to university. So applying to Concordia, and I remember standing outside of my rehab, I had gone back to visit or to do a, a group session. And I remember standing outside with my counselor and I got the email from Concordia and the first word was congratulations. And if you're ever waiting for an acceptance letter and you see that first word, you know, you're gold, you know, and, and, and I, I was crying tears of joy. And that was the very first time I had ever cried tears of joy. I only thought stuff like that happened in the movies. I wasn't attached to my emotions enough to ever feel that much pleasure or excitement that I were to cry. And, and the fact that it happened right in front of my counselor was, was another kind of, you know, one of those beautiful memories that I got to store. <laughs> I remember getting to Concordia and I took problems of philosophy. It was my very first class that I picked. I don't know why <laughs> my teacher, I, I couldn't even understand what he was trying to say. It was this huge auditorium with all of these kids. I felt so awkward. I didn't know where to sit. I didn't know what I was supposed to be doing. And I remember he was talking about this table and he was asking us, is the table there or is it your perception of the table? And I literally like checked out mentally. I, I, and that's the thing with me. If I find something difficult right in the beginning, I get this kind of fuck it moment. And I say, I don't want to do this. This is too hard. I'm never going to be able to do this. 
And I remember getting, I failed that class. I got an F and then I took another class and I got a D and then I took another class and I got a C. And I remember after the first term was finished, I got a notice from Concordia saying that I was on probation because my grades weren't high enough. And I remember sitting in my dad's office in my parents' house in tears. And I said to him, I'm, I'm quitting. I'm not, I'm not going to continue. I said, I'm going to become a cop. <laughs> I don't know why. I have no idea why, but I was going to become a cop in that moment. And I've never wanted to be a cop in my life. And that just goes to show like how many insane ideas that I have sometimes, not that there's anything wrong with being a cop, but I don't think I'd make a very good cop. And he said, uh, no, you're not you now finish everything that you start. And I still, I remember the conversation. I remember what I was wearing. I remember his voice. And if that's one line that has stayed with me is that I finish things that I start. I remember a friend of mine a few years ago used to always tell me something along the lines of the same message. And he said, I really try not to start things that I know that I can't finish. And that's another good one, you know, that I keep in my mind and that can go from anything that can go to relationships, you know, why, why continue a relationship if you know that it's not the right relationship for you or that you can't stay in it, or you can't give the person what they need, or maybe that person can't give you what you need. You know, why do we start, or maybe taking a job that, you know, essentially isn't right for you and that you can't commit to, you know, trying to save ourselves the maybe resentment or fear or pain that can come from starting things that we know we can't finish. And that conversation to me was just, it was just a clear message and I needed to figure out how I was going to finish a four-year degree. You know, and I, and I remember sitting at, I remember sitting at Rockaberries on St. Charles with a friend of mine from high school. And I think she was, she was in economics or something. And I think she might've been in her last year. And I was expressing to her how I used to call myself things like stupid and just, you know, worthless. My language towards myself was terrible. And I remember telling her, like, I just think I'm, I'm too stupid to, to finish school. And she said, listen, Jess, what I did at the beginning was every time I got stuck on a word, I would go on my computer and I would look for the definition. And I thought, holy shit, is that going to take a while? And the God's honest truth was that's what I did. I would read. I wouldn't understand this word. I'd type it in my computer. And that's how I started to learn. And I started to be able to read again. That's another huge complaint that I hear from people is, I can't read properly. I read a paragraph and it's gone out of my mind. You know, maybe there's something wrong with me. And that's exactly what was happening to me too. The, the brain is a muscle. If you don't work out your brain, you're going to lose muscle mass. It's the same as the gym. If I don't want to work on my biceps for a year, I'm not going to have very strong biceps muscles by the end, bicep muscles by the end of the year. And it was the same thing with my brain. I hadn't practiced reading. There was no books. <laughs> I was not reading any books in the bars or at 6 a.m. doing drugs with my friends. And, and it was practice. And the good thing and the bad thing about goal setting or really sticking to something is that 
it takes a lot of hard work and it takes a lot of patience. And if there's one thing that I've never had a lot of is patience and it's hard. It's hard when you're in it and it feels like the days are long and it feels like it's going to take forever. But when you do finish it and when you do achieve that goal, however small that you set for yourself, I think that, that, that reward or that feeling is invaluable. Like you can't replace the feeling that you get from sticking to what it is you said you were going to do. And that's what happened. You know, I, I graduated and, and, and throughout the years of being in Concordia, I must've switched like, (laughs) excuse me, like three times. I didn't know what I was going to do. All I knew was that I liked talking to people. (laughs) There's this, there's this drawing, this caricature in my dad's office of all of my family members. And it was drawn by an artist. I don't know if my parents were friends with him or they just met him randomly on this flight but he drew all of us. And my, my brother had this kind of squash racket and my dad is a golfer. So we had this golf club and my mom had this cute kind of, she was sitting on a fence with this floppy hat. And then there was Jessica and I was this kind of like opera singing child. And all it said was the voice on top of it. And I think because I never shut the fuck up, I'm always talking. I'm, I'm very curious by nature. I love to hear other people's stories I love to be able to articulate pain for other people. And I love to talk about the juicy things that other people don't want to talk about. (laughs) I just feel comfortable talking about them. You know, I don't want to hide anymore. I don't want to feel shameful about it. And if I can bring somebody some comfort by talking about it for them, then why not? So I think that was the biggest thing that I knew about myself was graduating from school was the ability to communicate, uh, the ability to public speak. I remember not being nervous to present in front of the class or to make friends at school. I still talk to a lot of the students that I met in Concordia. And that was a long time ago. You know, I think I just value those relationships with other people and, and I get excited to see what they're doing with their lives, you know, and how much that's changed for them too. And I think that's kind of just how it all started, you know, and I graduated school and I remember that, that framing that diploma. And I thought to myself, a holy shit, you did it. But then also the dangerous trap of what's next. And I think that can be something that I fall into identifying as somebody with very addictive tendencies is not taking the time to appreciate what it is that I've just done, um, acknowledging the work that I've just put into something and immediately feeling like more is better because sometimes more isn't better. Sometimes valuing what you just did and the experiences you just had and being proud of yourself is way better than accumulating more. And I got very lost in this trap of more, 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 more. And yes, it benefited me in terms of continuing education or courses or things that I've learned, but it's also harmed me in a way of not slowing down enough to maybe share those experiences with other people to feel content or settled 
or slowing down enough to focus on one thing. It was always very many things going on at the same time. So that's something that I really try to promote now is, is slow and steady, you know, feeling your feelings, thinking before you speak, thinking before your next idea. And, you know, that degree just translated into all different new areas. And I started to primarily work with people who had gone through the same thing that I had gone through myself. And I have a lot of people ask me that, you know, like when you're seeing a therapist or a counselor, do you need them to have, to have gone through, you know, the same hell that you went through? And I I say sometimes, yeah. And sometimes no, I I've met and worked with many talented therapists, counselors, psychologists who have never struggled with addiction, but maybe they've gone through their own personal hell with something else. I think at the end of the day, if whoever it is you're working with has enough empathy and understanding and can connect with you on a level that you need to connect with, then it doesn't really matter if they've gone through the exact same situation. Now, I mean, if you're struggling with certain you know, behaviors or a certain substance that's taken you to, you know, the depths of insanity and you want somebody to have gone through that experience, then yes, for sure. Seek out somebody who, who knows where you've been, who knows why it is you behave the way that you behave. And, and I felt like that was the path for me at the time was really helping other people out of um, the hell of, of substance addiction and alcoholism and it was great. You know, it was, it was great. I got to, I got to learn a ton, you know, working in a treatment center, you get to see, you know, you are at the front line of the insanity that happens when somebody is addicted to drugs or alcohol, right? You get to see the person at, in their most broken state, you know, hitting, hitting whatever rock bottom that they need to hit, but then also getting to see them (laughs) leave a completely different person than they came in. And that was one of the coolest experiences, you know, not only physically did they look completely different, but mentally, emotionally, spiritually, it's like they become conscious again. And only if that was easier to maintain you know, I used to think, why would anybody experience sobriety and then throw it away? But I don't think that way anymore because I know now how difficult it is to be sober and to still feel very, very extreme emotions, extreme sadness, pain, regret, fear, remorse, Those feelings are easy when you're still drinking and using because you have something to numb yourself with. You just grab whatever it is you want that day, pop a pill, drink, shop, get in a new relationship, porn, whatever you're into, and it numbs the pain. But when you're sober, (laughs) you're feeling that pain, you know, and you can try different things to try to get around it. But at the end of the day, you're going to have to move through it. You can't go around, you can't go on top, you can't go underneath, you got to move through that pain. And it's, I've humbled my opinion 
in that respect, because I realize now that sometimes it's easier to go back to hell than it is to feel that pain sober. And I think another reason why I want to become a little bit more vocal about that pain for people and some of the things that you can do to get out of that pain that don't involve hurting yourself or your family again, you know, (laughs) and something that I had to learn in the past 15 years, you have to get pretty creative when you don't get to go back to your substance. You know, so seeing, seeing those experiences in, in, in that rehab and, and, and seeing a lot of people, I used to hear things like, 3% of people stay sober or less than 10% of you in this group are going to stay sober. And I used to think like, Whoa, that's really dramatic. Like let's, let's give people a little bit more of a chance. But the, the sad, ugly truth is that that is wildly accurate. I'd say it's around 3%. There's one other person that I know is still sober from my group, maybe two in 15 years you know, and sadly over the years, a lot of people I've, I've been to a lot of funerals. I've seen a lot of death, a lot of broken families. It's really, really, really scary. The things that can come out of addiction, you know, and, and sobriety can be so beautiful, but again, I understand how hard it is to acquire and to maintain. And I think one of the, the biggest things that I started to see happening with people who did stay sober, including myself, was the idea of of counter-transference or transferring whatever addiction you came in for, transferring to something else when you got sober. And I didn't realize that it was happening to me at the time, but in a very short amount of time, these strong ideas about weight, shopping, relationships, anything that was going to give me that buzz, I started to gravitate towards again. And food was the first one for me. So I remember after being like a year sober and yes, still setting my goals, still achieving things, still being sober, which was amazing, but very, very, very sneaky in the background these little addictions started to pop back up, you know, and and food, I think was one of the major ones for me again, where whenever I was feeling sad or bored or lonely, food was always right there for me. And it was like, okay, you know, let's binge tonight. And you hear a lot about that binge eating, binge eating disorder, Uh, you know, what does a binge look like? I have some girlfriends that call me and they're like, Oh my God, I ate six Oreos last night. And I'm like, Oh my God, like that wouldn't even be my appetizer on a binge. You know, like I was binging on food. And I remember like, no way 10 years ago would I ever talk about this, let alone talk about it publicly with God knows how many people are going to be listening to this. But it's something that needs to be talked about because my solution to my pain, now that the drugs and alcohol were gone, now looked like, okay, order a pizza. Now, when the whole pizza was finished, now, obviously I automatically want sugar. Now get some sugar. 
Now this, now the pain comes, now the guilt comes, now the fear comes, now the bloating comes. And then the next morning, it was almost like I was hung over from the food. And then I started to realize like, holy shit, this is a, this is a very familiar pattern. Blacking out for me with whatever substance is very comfortable for me. Sitting there without anything to numb myself is very uncomfortable for me. And I fell into that food trap for a long, long, long time. And then the scary thing about that trap is that a lot of people fall into disordered eating after, right? So those binges can be followed by heavy restriction, you know, excessive working out was a bad one that I fell into, you know, having to burn off what you ate the night before, which is not the point of exercising, you know, purging. A lot of people fall into the trap of purging what it is that they just ate, which is a very physically, emotionally, spiritually dangerous practice. So it was almost like this all or nothing behavior came back and And I think that those are, those are some of the things that I really, really, really want to focus on going forward is that if you are stuck in those cycles, you know, how can we make it a little lighter to talk about that? And it is getting better. I have to say it's getting so much better. You can go on to Instagram. Now there's support groups on Facebook, there's content on YouTube and people are outwardly talking about binging and how not to binge and how to properly eat during the day that you feel satiated enough that you don't have to binge, but definitely want to continue uh, to talk about it. And, you know, if that looks like me publicly (laughs) being vulnerable about some of my binges, I'm okay with it. I'm okay with it now. And I'm also okay with it now because I'm not stuck in it as much anymore. Can it still happen? For sure. Is it as ugly as it was before? Absolutely not. But I remember a friend in Toronto telling me living with an addiction is like having seven garbage cans and only six lids. So you're constantly trying to cover these things and one is always popping up. And I know that to be true. I know that to be true because my mind is hardwired to solve my problems in a very addictive way. So that's when I started to get passionate about you know, food and fitness and, and eating and eating well, like eating and not dieting, eating properly for your hormones, for your testosterone levels, for men, you know, eating, eating food for your brain that supports your brain function. We were never taught, or I was never taught any of these things. It was like, eat, eat sugar-free, low-fat, fucking rice cakes and you'll be thin. (laughs) And then I eat 30 rice cakes and I'm hungrier than I was before I ate the rice cakes. It just, none of it made sense, especially if you grew up in like the eighties and the nineties, that low fat, low sugar, you know, era that came over us was probably the most dangerous thing to happen to the nutrition industry. And it screwed a lot of people up, right? We didn't talk about eating heart, healthy, brain, healthy fats and omega threes and fish oils. And thank God we know, we know a lot more about that now, but I was always eating to try to keep myself thin, not keep myself healthy, not keep myself happy, not keep myself stable, 
keep myself thin. So I got very passionate about what are some of the foods that I need to not only feel better, not only feel less inflamed, not only lose weight, you know, feel more physically fit. But then I started to realize, holy shit, I don't feel as anxious or depressed when I eat a certain diet. And I think that that's when everything shifted for me. I was about 27 or 28. I had just quit smoking, which was like my, probably my last vice. And when I quit smoking, holy cow, I don't know if you can quit smoking and not gain weight. I'm just going to say that to anybody who's thinking that they're struggling with quitting smoking, that all they want to do is eat. I say eat, like just eat eat, 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 gain the weight because you can lose the weight. You can't really lose the effects of the damage that you're going to do to yourself by smoking long-term. So I was whatever, 27, 28 must've packed on like 30 pounds instantly. And that's when I was really like, okay, this whole kind of yo-yo up and down all or nothing thing. I've got to get a better handle on this going forward And that's when I started to study holistic nutrition and man, did it open up so many doors. And again, of course I took it to great extremes because that's what I did and, you know, got super fit and got the six pack and lost a ton of weight. But again, my friends, like if it feels extreme, it is, if it feels too good, it is, if it feels like it's too much, it is (laughs) like, trust yourself. Certain things are not sustainable. And what I was doing was unsustainable because again, it was, it was all for everybody else, but me. And for sure the compliments are great. Oh my God, you look so amazing. You go shopping, you feel great. You can fit into anything. But then all of a sudden I was like, why do I feel anxious again? Why is my depression back? Why can't I sleep? Why do I feel wired? Like too much energy was because my body wasn't getting the foods that it needed. It's a very complicated process. And no wonder people get very, you know, exhausted trying to diet or trying to find the right calories. You hear everything from macro counting to intermittent fasting to keto, paleo, all these different diets. And again, I am never going to promote any type of lifestyle for anyone. It goes back to my original message with sobriety, do what works for you. And what works for me now is pulling from all different types of lifestyles, like a high fat diet works for me. A high fat, lower carb diet works well for my body. Now, somebody who works out three hours a day, might not do well on a diet like that. You might need a heavier carb diet and a lower fat diet. I don't know, but find out, you know, what it is that works for you and explore and try different things. It's all, I think life is a process of trial and error. You know, you got to keep trying. And once you find something that works, then you're able to stick with it, you know, as best as you can. So I think after that whole period of being humbled, I'm always humbled by my extreme actions you know, I was way underweight when I moved back from Toronto. And of course, when you're underweight, your body is, is starving, right? So when you start to give it the proper amount of food again, it holds on to that food for dear life. And it's like, thank you so much, you know, and what happened was, you know, I I gained weight pretty quickly, but 
it wasn't a bad weight gain because I focused a lot more on my mental health at the time. And it was really about feeling happier. I felt more connected with my friends again. I was going out to eat. I was laughing again. You know, it's not worth being skinny and feeling, you know, restless and irritable and lonely and isolated and you don't want to go out. That's not the point of life at all. So that taught me, you know, quite a, quite a grave lesson. And, and, and now it's just been this process of a lot more balance in my life and, you know, the certain foods that I need to stay away from because they don't help me not only physically anymore. They don't help my mood. They don't help my sleep. They don't help my mental health. So it's really a process of finding out, you know, if, is it, is it hurting you or is it helping you? And you can look at that in all different areas of your life. And if you don't know how the hell you're going to do that, then keep tuning into this podcast. Cause we're going to talk about all of those things coming forward. So this, you know, guys was really just kind of an intro, an intro more into my life, because I feel like as wonderful as it is to interview other people, I want you guys to also know, you know, the real me and and why it is I'm passionate about helping other people is because I've been there too. I don't want anybody to think, and, you know, sometimes I hear some comments or things like that on social media or, you know, my posts or recovery. And it's like, yeah, for sure. I can be positive, but those lessons have come from excruciating personal pain that I've been helped through, or that I feel like I've come on the other side of, and some days I haven't. And some days I'm still sitting in that personal pain and that self-pity and that, you know, torturous, incessant cycle of ruminating thoughts. But I know that the next day I'm not going to feel that way, you know, and I know I can go back to doing the things that make me feel good and that have helped me. So this really is going to be a project of bringing a lot more of those things to life and, you know, vocalizing them and and helping you guys with and listening to the things that you guys want to talk about and having fun with it, you know, and And yes, it's serious and yes, pain is awful and depression and anxiety is awful, but you know, God, we got to laugh, especially after the two years that we've just had, uh, we got to laugh. So I'm going to be doing these solo podcasts, probably bi-weekly. I'll do an interview one week and then a topic the next week. So I'll get, uh, I'll get a link out for you guys that you can start to submit some questions or some comments or some ideas going forward. And we'll make this a fun community thing, you know, talk about the things that you guys want to talk about and, uh, you know, shed some light and some laughter to those heavy topics. So I love you all. Thank you again for all of the amazing positive feedback and for all of my friends, God, who I didn't even know were so talented, who have just come out of the woodwork offering to help me from anything from graphics to music to IT stuff. I just, uh, I have beautiful people in my life and I am very, very grateful. So Stay tuned for next week's episode and thank you all for listening.